This is CliffCentral.com. Womandla on CliffCentral.com. And believe it, it's a real thing. If you put a smile on your face, it makes you feel a little bit better, even if everything around you is crap. And I think one of the things that we're definitely feeling at the moment here in South Africa is we are feeling a little bit down. And I just thought, you know what? Today's that day. Because this is what Womandla is about. I'm Pumi Masheho, and you're tuned into Womandla. And we are going to celebrate. Because South Africa has some incredible people in it. South Africa has some incredible women in it holding it up. And I thought I'm going to share with you this show, some of my favorite um, people that I've spoken to. And about a year ago, I spoke to an incredibly phenomenal young lady who was battling um, an eating disorder for years and years and years. And in the second half of the show is talking to one of my favorite comedians at the moment. She is the incredibly funny Tenji where I'm sure every Friday you, like me, uh, wait for those skits of hers to come out on the internet. And she's on the show also chatting a little bit about how she conquered London. And so we're going to do that today. We're not going to worry. We're not going to worry. All of the things that are happening, so we've got a crap president. So Standard & Poor's have taken us down. So our credit rating... Um, our sovereign credit rating has gone collectively down into the toilet. But hey, you know what? We've got some awesomeness in this country to celebrate. And here are just two of the phenomenal women who inhabit this beautiful country alongside all of us. Enjoy. And I have a very lovely young lady here in the studio with me who, when I, when you walked in, Lizanne, and I looked at you and I thought, huh. Not a bad deal if coming out on the other side of this you're like a size extra 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 small because you look <laughs> you look amazing Thank in you. my eyes. Thank you. You look amazing in my eyes, but I do know a little bit about eating disorders, and I grew up at that time when Princess Di was all the range. <laughs> Everybody loved Princess Di. She was like she was the original like tabloid queen. And one of the things that, well, I was much younger at the time, I could never understand was there were always stories about her and her eating disorder. And I couldn't understand it. And I read lots and lots and lots of books and I read the articles and I read everything there was to read, but I still couldn't quite understand it. And that's why I'm very excited that you're here to have a conversation with me about your experience. And and hopefully when we walk out of here, I have a better understanding and all the listeners have a better understanding. So welcome to the show, Lizelle. Thank you so much. And more importantly, congratulations on being so brave. Thank you. <laughs> so so tell me tell me about your eating disorder and how it started for well, you. Well, um, my eating disorder started almost 16 years ago. Um, I was a little girl. Of so you were only two? I was nine. <laughs> I'm a lot older than I look. Um, wow. It started when I was, uh, well, I was, it started officially when I was nine. I was only diagnosed with anorexia at 11, but it did start when I was nine. Um, my eating disorder was triggered by um, sexual abuse initially, um, being abused by someone from the age of about five. And when they then left the country when I was nine, I think I didn't 
I didn't know how to deal with it I was like what's going on I don't understand what happened to me And I think in my mind I say to myself This will never happen to me again And getting the eating disorder Becoming that thin I think in the beginning was A way of protecting myself Of no one will ever look at me that way again If I am this thin Um, So that's sort of where it started And as my life went on Any trauma, any bad thing that happened to me I then manifested into my eating disorder So when much when you were a teenage girl. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the thing with, with eating, the thing is with eating disorders, they do manifest in our teenage years because we do sometimes feel out of control. Things happen to us. And because at that age, you don't have the coping mechanisms you might have as an adult to deal with the trauma, to deal with what's going on. You often resort to either eating disorders or drugs or whatever it may be. That's why so many girls develop their eating disorders during their teen years. So, let's say the, the two most famous eating disorders, in my view, is on the left, anorexia. Yes. And on the right, bulimia. Yes. Which, which we, we all kind of look at as a, as a left and right. You know, but and they're actually a spectrum. Yes. And oh. they're very, very integrated. Um, and a lot of people who might have started as anorexia, as with me, I started as anorexic. And because I had so much pressure put on me to eat and you need to eat and you need to eat. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll eat, but then I'm going to throw it up. So a lot of people then become what they call anorexia binge purge subtype, which means they eat and whatever they do eat. They then throw up So that people think they're eating But they don't And a lot of people often switch between Anorexia and bulimia And often bulimia is actually a lot more dangerous um, Just because it's a lot harder To diagnose in the beginning Because it's it's easier to hide A lot of people who have bulimia Are often normal weight or even overweight Um, So it goes on a lot longer Without being detected As with anorexia You can often see someone who is anorexic They look thin They, You can often see it Where bulimia can go on a lot longer And often bulimia is only diagnosed When they actually go to the dentist When the dentist is like What's going on? Um, and that's with me now personally at the age of 25, almost 26, I have to have 12 teeth crowned. And just because of what the physical effects that that has on your body. That sounds painful. Yeah. And that's often the thing with eating disorders is that even after recovery, you sit with those effects of what you did to your body before. And then when you actually want to live, your body starts to fall apart, which is something where I'm always like, the quicker you can stop it and the quicker you can prevent it, the better. Because the longer it goes on, the longer the effects are on you for the rest of your life. So at nine years old, when you were diagnosed, did you even understand what, what, what everybody was talking about around you? Or did you understand that something is wrong and I'm... You know, nine because I live with a nine-year-old. Sure, he's a, a little boy, girl. So he's still. a little slow. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, but I I I think does a nine-year-old little girl truly understand? Um, personally, I didn't think I understand. I didn't even think I knew what an eating disorder was. I think to me, not eating and being as skinny as I could be was a way of 
protecting myself and a way of controlling the situation that I felt I wasn't in control of. I didn't think, oh, I want to lose weight to be skinny because I want to look pretty or I want to be skinny because the magazines tell me I need to be skinny. It was nothing to do with actually being skinny. It was completely a way of controlling a situation where I felt out of control. Sure. And what what was the change for you? What was the change? And, you know, so is anorexia or any eating disorder, is it like alcoholism, for instance? Is it something that you deal with every day, that you fight with every day? Or is it something that now you're better? Oh, no. <laughs> An eating disorder never, ever, ever goes away. It's probably something that sufferers will have to deal with for the rest of their lives. But I always say that an eating disorder, getting an eating disorder isn't a choice, but recovery is. Um, and like with any addiction, it is something that you have to work at every single day. But the thing that makes eating disorders a lot harder than other addictions is with alcoholism or drugs, you can just remove that element from your life or try to remove it from your life. Where with eating disorders, it's something, food is something you have to deal with three to six times a day. It's, and it's part of life. It's exactly. It's not something that's been added onto life like drugs or alcohol. It's something that's you needed to live. And when it's your worst enemy, then it's sort of like a juggling match with do I eat? Why do I eat? How do I eat? So it's, it is probably one of the most difficult mental illnesses to recover from and that's why it does have the highest mortality rate than any other mental illness even depression you would think that people who are depressed are more prone to suicide or to any other um, actions but people with eating disorders do commit a lot of suicide because they literally feel like they can't go on anymore or they do die from the medical complications from being super underweight or from low potassium or heart attacks from throwing up all the time. So it does have the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. And for you in the past 16 years, as, you, as you've transitioned from being a little girl and now a young woman dealing with this mental illness, what have you learned about yourself? I think I've learned that I'm a lot tougher than I think. <laughs> um, often people, I think I underestimate myself a lot. And that is part of the illness. You don't have high self-confidence. You never feel good enough. Nothing is ever good enough. That's another part of an eating disorder. Nothing is ever good enough. You're never thin enough, never fit enough. So um, I have learned that I am tougher than I think I am. And I've also, I think, learned to be compassionate to other people um, for, and for what they're going through. So I think it has it has taught me a lot. It's put me through a lot, but it has taught me a lot as well. And I, I always say, I always used to say that I would love to turn back the time and take it away. But I also know if would I do, no, that's why now that I've gotten older, I'm like, no, I don't think I would because I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't go through all those struggles, if I didn't go through all the rehabs and all the process of getting to where I am, I don't think I would be the person that I am today. So I don't actually think I would take it back. And tell me about your family. Oh, family. <laughs> um, it was very hard on my parents. Um, as I didn't have the greatest relationship with my dad when I was younger and my parents did have a rocky marriage, which then just 
made the eating disorder actually worse because it was another situation where I felt like I couldn't control it. So I can't control my parents' relationship. I can't control the fighting. So I can control what I'm eating. But then they actually started fighting about me being sick. So um, I blame myself a lot for a lot of their problems. And um, my mother, she was very strong for very long. Um, but then the last time I went to treatment, three years, four years, almost four years ago, um, my mother had had enough. She was like, if you really want to die so badly, die. I think she had just come to her wit's end and she literally basically disowned me. And at this stage, I felt so alone and like my family had just dumped me at this state psych ward and they didn't care about me, but it was probably the best thing my mother could have done. I think because it made me realize what I was going to lose if I didn't get better. Um, so it's been an up and a down thing and a lot of parents blame themselves for their children's eating disorders. And I would actually say that parents, that it's, it's a natural instinct to blame themselves, but I would actually advise them not to blame themselves or not to make it known to the person that's suffering that they blame themselves as we already feel so guilty about what we're doing to ourselves to have other people's guilt put on us. They might think that it would inspire us to get better, but it actually then just makes the behavior worse because we're feeling like we're, we're such a terrible person to begin with, so we might as well suffer Did even you more. feel guilty? Did you feel guilty? Was, you know, were the feelings that you have throughout the experience, and I know you're still living that experience, what are they? Guilt? Guilt is definitely one of the biggest things, I think, for myself and for anyone suffering from an eating disorder. Um, every little thing that you put in your mouth, there is some form of guilt associated with it. Some form of like, I shouldn't be eating this. I'm not good enough for this. Um, and then also the guilt that comes with what you've done to your family, the guilt that comes with what you've done to yourself, the guilt. It's lit. Eating disorders are so covered in guilt almost. Just guilt towards yourself, guilt towards people, guilt towards what you're eating. It's guilt-ridden, I would say. And, <laughs> and what what are the feelings? Well, the one of the main feelings with eating disorders is never, like I said, never feeling good enough. I've actually had the word enough tattooed on my arm. Is that what that is? <laughs> to remind myself every day, I am good enough. I am worthy of eating. I am worthy of being healthy. I am worthy of having a life. Because um, it's just never, ever feeling good enough. And that's the thing with people with eating disorders are often people who have a perfectionistic personality where everything needs to be perfect, everything. And they're often high achievers who never feel good enough to begin with. Uh, if you can get 80, then 85 is better. If you can get 85, then 90 is better. And we apply that to our weight as well. Like if 50 kilograms is not good enough, then 45 kilograms will be good enough. And then so on it goes. And then eventually naught is the only number that you will think is good enough. So I think... Never feeling enough and guilt are definitely the two big emotions that go with eating disorders. And what's your relationship with your mother like now? It was rocky <laughs> to begin with, but um, 
I think as she saw that I was serious about getting better and that I wanted to live and it's actually gotten better. But it's also taught me that I need to stand on my own two feet. I can't rely on my mother for everything. Um, so, and that my, it's my illness. It's not for her to sort out. I can't carry on blaming my parents. I can't carry on blaming the person who abused me. I can't carry on blaming the children that bullied me at school. I need to make the decision that this is my life and I can no longer let these people predict what my life needs to be like. And, and what about, what about him? So I know he left the country, but we, have you ever had any contact beyond? The last time I went to treatment was actually the first time. My mother, I told my mother about the situation only when I was in matric. Um, but other than her, no one else knew. And he was a family friend. So it was quite a, a sensitive subject. You know, what do you do? You know the family, you know. So then only when I went to treatment the last time, I, four years ago. Yeah, I had the guts to tell my dad and my brother about it. And the psychiatrist and the psychologist about it. And then they gave me the option of going to the police. And I thought to myself, do I, he was quite young at the time. I was very young at the time, but he was also quite a young guy at the time. And I thought to myself, do I really want to go sit in court and rehash all of this? Um, or do I just not forgive and forget, but let it go for my own sake. Um, so it was a very hard thing that I had to go through to try and decide what do I do. And I, and I made the decision of letting it go. Um, I just didn't feel up to having the whole court case and having everything come out. And just because what he did, I felt didn't, shouldn't have to reflect on his family and his friends and a whole bunch of people that I knew. But have you ever spoken to him? I haven't spoken to him directly, no, not since. I saw him twice after he had left the country and I haven't seen him since. Have you forgiven him? I think I have. Um, I've forgiven him. I'm still angry at what he's done, well, what he did, but I just feel like being angry at him and staying angry at him, and it's not really affecting his life. He's carrying on with his life. It's like me drinking poison, poison and hoping for him to die. So I think that's literally what I was doing. I was starving myself. I was killing myself while he was going on with his life. Have you forgiven um, yourself? I'm getting there. Like, I must say, um, this last, I must say, year has been a very good year for me. Um, I feel, even though I'm seeing a lot less therapists and things as I used to, because I feel like I've gotten stronger, I feel like I've had a lot of personal growth. And maybe it's coming with the age as well, being 25 and getting <laughs> sort oh, of growing, growing up. <laughs> um, I think it's also... Just realizing who I am and coming into myself and realizing these passions and dreams and things that I kind of never got to live as a child, as a teenager, as in my young 20s. Um, sometimes I say to myself, I feel like I'm a teenager now, sort of like living into the things that I sort of missed out on. And being the wise old age of 20, <laughs> I feel a lot older than I think. <laughs> being the wise old age of 25, what would you tell 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds that 
that may be feeling not good enough, as you were saying, that may be feeling the pressure of being perfect, as you were saying, what would you tell them? I would tell them I know it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. Um, and I know the feelings are very real to the individual and they very, and they feel like they take you over. But I would say is hang in there and focus on what you're good at. Focus on what you love. Don't focus on the negative because if you focus on the negative, there's only one way and that's down. Um, and the other thing that I would also say is if, you feel that you might be heading towards an eating disorder or you see your friends heading towards an eating disorder, don't keep quiet. Silence kills. I always say silence kills. Hiding these illnesses kill. So I would say if you are feeling anything, speak up. Speak up as soon as you feel these feelings. Don't let them manifest because once they've manifested and they so ingrained in you like they were in me, it took me 16 years, multiple hospital admissions, rehab. I think I've seen more psychiatrists and psychologists than I can count on my hands to get to where I am now. Um, and I feel like recovery would is a lot easier the sooner you start. So... Before we, we came into the studio, we were talking about the myths. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of them. Yeah. And I, I was telling you that for a long time, and, and again, because it was Princess Di, you know. that the, She's so fabulous. She's so fabulous. <laughs> but she's also so rich, so white, so pretty, you know. Yes. Um, for a long time, for me, eating disorders were confined to a particular... Stereotype of people, young white girls. <laughs> yeah, or old white girls. Or old white girls. girls. It's always just the white girls yes. behaving bad. <laughs> what what are what are some of those myths? Well, that 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 we all need to get out of our heads. Well, firstly, that is the biggest myth that it's just young white girls that get it, which is not true. Um, I was actually speaking to one of the psychiatrists. That works at one of the treatment centers that I went to And she was telling me last week That in the last year They've had a 10% increase of men Coming in for treatment And a lot of people are like No, it's just a woman thing Guys can't get eating disorders And it's it's grown in popularity And having gone to different types of eating disorders And places, normal rehab Specialized eating disorder centers State and private Um I've realized that it's not just young white girls. I had black girls in there with me. I had guys in there with me, Indian ladies, and not just young, ranging from very, very young like I was to actually women who are heading towards retirement and even past retirement who are still struggling. So I think that myth that it's a young girl thing that they want to look like models and everyone wants to be skinny is actually completely wrong. Um, very, very, very few women who are And anyone who's diagnosed with an eating disorder Will tell you that it started with The pressure of being feeling Having to be skinny by what they see in a magazine An eating disorder I feel sometimes is actually just the The outcome of Another problem Like I said, being abused or 
It's a situation and the eating disorder is almost a reaction to the situation. But it does then manifest in weight. But it actually doesn't have anything to do with vanity or with looking good as what most people think. Oh, eating disorders are just young girls wanting to be skinny, which is a complete lie, actually. <laughs> Lizay, today, if you were to describe yourself to a person that doesn't know you at all, what are the words that you use to describe yourself? Let's be honest now. I actually, when people ask me this question, are you telling me you haven't been honest this whole time? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> when people ask me this question, um, the thing is, I still struggle often to see myself physically in a, in a positive light. Um, so, I often try and focus on other things than just the way I look. Um, so I am a photographer, so I'm very passionate about photography. So I say I am a good photographer or I am compassionate about people. I, I'm intelligent. So I try to focus on things that actually have nothing to do with the way that I look. Um, and which I say is, Often what I also say to people when they say, what do I say to someone who has an eating disorder? How do I make them feel better about themselves? And I often say, don't say anything about their bodies. Focus on who they are as a person. Because I think sometimes we as eating disorder people, we feel that's all we are. But we're actually still people. Um, so I try for myself and advice to others is focusing on the other elements of who you are rather than what you look like. So that's what I, I I see myself as someone who's very passionate. I'm a hard worker. I'm a tough cookie. <laughs> as they say, dynamite comes in small packages. Are you tough? <laughs> a very tough, very tough. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have picked you for the tough type. Yeah, I'm a definitely, definitely a guy's girl. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing yourself with us so candidly. It's a Thank pleasure. You it, it really is. And I think this, this week in particular, there'll be a lot of talk. There'll be a lot of talk and there'll be a lot of stuff happening everywhere with people trying to raise awareness. But I think yes. that, that what you're doing, just sharing your experience and sharing your life. Yes. Is possibly one of the, the most powerful ways. Yes. Of, of making an impact And thank you for being so brave It's only a pleasure Like I always say It's it's easy to read the articles And to read the psychology books But it's a completely different story Listening to someone's story And as people are different So everyone's story is different So it, so I always say like in Even in recovery It's not a set in stone plan Everyone's recovery is different Every some people might need inpatient. Some people might need outpatient treatment. It's so individual. So I feel like some people might feel, but I don't tick all those boxes that the psychology book says I need to tick to be sick. Um, so it is definitely a personal story. And that's why also I encourage people to share their stories. And um, this Friday, we're actually having an event where people can come and share their Where's stories. The event? the event will be at LALT. It's the Live Arts Little Theater in Boxburg at 7 o'clock on Friday night. Fantastic. So I was very worried that I may say the wrong thing. I say the wrong things all the time. I was very worried. And, yes. and I, was, I was particularly worried about whether I'd be, how I'd feel. And I must tell you that how I feel is I feel very hopeful. Yeah. 
and, and actually very excited that's, for you. That's actually great to hear because eating disorders are such a, a hopeless situation. People who suffer often feel like there's no way out of this. So for me to make you feel that way is actually great. And like you said, you were scared of what to say. And that is often a thing. And people do often say the wrong things because an eating disorder people are so sensitive. Um, and we will, our minds are so sick actually. And the, the less you weigh, the sicker your mind becomes and everything gets turned to you are fat. So someone might tell you today, you look beautiful. And in your brain that goes, oh, so I look fat. Mm-hmm. So that's why, like I said, I, I do tell people to just look past the physical because if you comment anything on the physical, we will turn it around into you are fat. So thank you so much. Lizzie, it's only for a pleasure yourself, sharing yourself with us. This is, this is what we do here at Womanla. We're all about women empowerment and we're all about the power of women and the power of the mind of women. And, and I thought, what song am I going to play when she leaves? <laughs> because what if I feel like down? What if I feel terrible and sad and there's only one song that ever makes me dance all the time and i hope it makes you dance too but i'm so glad this is the song that i chose because (laughs) this is exactly the worry that i had before this is exactly the right feeling of i'm actually so happy Mm. that you came to chat with me thank you so much it's only a pleasure and good luck thank you for having me good luck Not one. I'm extremely happy and I'm very glad that that young lady was in here. Lizzie is absolutely amazing talking about her eating disorder. But now, the moment you've all been waiting for, if you've been wondering who is this person, I, I had to say to her when she came into the studio that I hope she's ready to having a fan moment because I'm possibly her biggest fan ever. I, I don't want to lie. I'm possibly your biggest fan ever. I've got Tenjiwe Mosley in the studio. She And I got her here on the pretext that she was going to talk about bitches be back. <laughs> But I'm not. No, I am. Welcome, Tenjiwe. Thank you so much, Pumi. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming through. I know it's like uh, in a couple of days. So what are you actually, what are you busy doing before the show? What are you busy do in between the time is showing again? again? Uh, as in like maybe this week? Yeah. Doing interviews, coming to see my fans like yourself. <laughs> And trying to observe as many things as I can, trying to read the news, see who's the mummish, who do I have to talk about, things like that. So, okay, you are, and as I then found out before coming on air, you are an ex-trained and practicing lawyer. Lawyer, advocate. I know. No, not that kind. A solicitor, but it's 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 a similar thing. A just solicitor. that I qualified in London. It's so English. <laughs> yeah, it's because I, I qualified in London. So, how does how does that happen? So, because the first time you born, and I'm like this girl, you know, this hectic, hectic, hectic Zulu girl who can only be, you know, ZG from Wazulu. 
<laughs> and then I read up and they're like, London based, what was? I'm like, how? How did this happen to this poor child? How do you end up in London? Hey, Zamimbelo. Oh, shame, man. It's not far. I always tell people because I, I, I do travel a lot and people are like, ah, you always travel a lot. But if you take a bus to KZN and I take a plane to London, we get there the same time. It's not far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's one way of looking at it. That's definitely one way of looking at it. But how do you make the jump? How do you make the jump from one day you are being a lawyer in the court and my lord and my lady and then I was uh, well, initially I wanted to be a performer. After matric I studied drama at uh, the Den University. It's now University Deben University of Deben, Technology. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was technical natal then that uh-huh. tells you how old I am. And you don't look it, so that's okay. And then I, I tried coming to Joburg, but hey, it was difficult. I didn't even have money to go for auditions. So there was an opportunity to go to America as an au pair. So I, 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 I went to America. Initially, it was um, the plan was to go there, work, save enough money, come back to Joburg, and then start pursuing my acting career. But then as life happens, after America, there was another opportunity to go to London. They still they had the two-year holiday working visas. Okay. I went there, ended up, ended up getting married. It'll take you down. It'll take you down. Men will derail mm. you. And then when I was there, I was like, I'm, I knew I needed to study something because if I were to pursue my acting career in London, I was either going to be which is all good, but I don't like doing things that are like prescribed for us. If you're black, you live here. This is what you do. If you're a foreigner, you live here. If you're an educated foreigner living in London, you must be a nurse. I didn't want to do that. (laughs) And I've never done that in my life. So how do you straddle the two? How long have you been living in London? Uh, 11 years, 12 years now. 12 years. Mm. So how do you straddle the two? How are you such a connected comedian when it comes to all the skits we see? I mean, those things are not like London-based skits. Mara, you are in London all the time. How, are you, how do you stay so connected? Because comedy is honesty. And as a person, I'm honest. Like... I've got a cousin, for example. She came to visit me one weekend. One weekend, Pumi. Up to today, she has a London accent. Everything is about <laughs> when I was in London. So it, you choose what you want to be. You choose what you want to do. And I've, I've I've still got my South African accent. I'm, I still speak to my South African people. But you do know I need to go to the accent. Just say Natali. I I I shinje. My my cousin is from Natali. I shinje man. From MJ to be. Got a shinje. By shinje. People do. I've got friends America with the American accent. And you're like, hey, when, who, who do you practice this accent with America? The children you look after can't even speak. But when you, you've picked up an American accent. So did you think, so when you, when you eventually, when you started with the comedy and you, you're on the circuit, you're in the London bars and doing your stand up and it's taking off. And then you started with the skits. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think that you'd be the kind of superstar you are now? No, but that 
one thing I knew is I was happy. The, the first time I went on stage when I was in London, I was actually with my colleagues. And we had had a lovely case, then went out to have a drink. And then we happened to be in a bar, in a pub where they were doing a, a comedy show. And so one of them was like, ah, you always make us laugh. Go and then do something on stage. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then next thing they were calling my name on stage. And I went, took the mic. And I never felt so good. It was like, this is what I was born to do. Oh, wow. And I, I, I was so lucky. I know with a lot of comedians, it takes a long time. It like takes two, 10 years before they, they get established or discovered. And within the first six months, I was already a finalist for the Funny Women Awards. Wow. So it was like, I found my calling. This is what I was supposed to do. And when I became too busy with both careers, I had to choose one. And for me, it was only natural to choose law. Mm. Not to choose law, to choose to leave law and, and follow comedy. Yeah, to give up with the law. Yeah. Yeah, I was just looking at you thinking, you chose law. No. <laughs> because sometimes we we are always told uh, about this thing of having a real job, being qualified. But that's, that's, those things are not our dreams. It was never my dream to have a law firm. Okay, but in honesty, in, in, in all honesty, one of the reasons why locally, and Sia and I had a, had a very big conversation, Langa Pandle, just now. One of the things that is a very real thing for artists in South Africa is that art doesn't pay. It, it does. doesn't pay enough I'll tell to you sustain what you for pay. your whole life. What doesn't pay is, number one, being a celebrity. Because once you are a celebrity, you worry too much about how you look. The money you make, instead of investing it, because who work, say, in a supermarket, they've got a house they've paid for, they send their children to schools. Most of us were sent by our unqualified, unprofessional parents to my university. But once you become a celebrity, you worry too much about who you're wearing. <laughs> you find people who go red carpets, they're too quick to say, I'm wearing this brand. But you're not getting paid. Don't be a celebrity, be an artist. And when you are an artist also, it's showbiz for a reason. There's a show, there's a business. Don't just focus on the show. Understand the business as well. And also, go to school. Talent alone will not pay bills. But if you treat it as a business, it will pay your bills. Have you found and the business? Also in, I have. And invest money and look at the opportunities. Like we, we, with uh, YouTube. And with YouTube pays you money for being on YouTube. You get money for being on YouTube. Uh, with Facebook, I, I was the first woman to sell out her first one-woman show. And that's because I've taken the opportunity to use social media. Most people didn't know me as a stand-up comedian, but they knew me through my videos. So by doing that, I was doing the business side of things. So people, when I, when I did my first one-woman show, people had already seen me. I had advertised myself. So they wanted to see this crazy woman who's doing this skit. So they paid to come and see me. That's how I made my money. And how did you come up with the characters? How do you come up with the characters? Because I must tell you, the character Gasisiloya, lo usisilo ofunuguba recognized, is my favorite. It's my favorite. Like even that guy. Who's that guy? Oh, fly, fly. 
<laughs> yeah, but like you're calling Mitenji where you're calling him that guy. He's been doing comedy for 15 years. Really? But because he doesn't concentrate on the business side of things, he just concentrates on being funny. Who are you funny to? Mm-hmm. Where are you being funny? And the fact that I use my name with all the skits, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter which skits you have seen, but you have seen Tenji. Yeah, because the the Valentine's one, which mm. I was just showing <laughs> everybody, is I've never seen that character before. Mm. Now we are now I'm wondering, Uguti, hey, who's sister? Segam upgradeile. upgrade, or is this a new character? But every every character is so distinct, and there's never a time where I have to suspend Uguti. Oh, this is Tenji where the maid, or this is Tenji where. The the mamfundis, or mm. tej, you know, it, it's it's incredible how you. And these are characters that. that we know. These are characters we grew, we we, we 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 saw growing up. These are characters in our families. These are a characters at the taxi rank, like the funeral one. It was it. it it, it went so viral and that's because these are things that happen at our funerals as black people. Mm. You you only laugh at something because you can relate to it. It it not like. Uh, uh, um, it's not Star Wars. I'm not making things up. It's just that I'm, I, I give it a, a, a comedy twist. But these are things we already know. Do you worry about your sensitivity? One of the things that I've seen, I love comedy. I love comedians. I love comedians. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is because you're so sensitive to everything around you, in order to be able to come up with that skit, you must be sensitive to to the smallest thing about a character and the flaw of a character. Do you ever worry about about what that level of sensitivity does to you? I, I don't think I do. I think uh, I'm I'm lucky that I started doing this when I was old, when I had experience of leaving and I know that not everyone's gonna love you and not everyone is gonna tell you when you're doing good not everyone's gonna tell you when they love you so you're always gonna have critics sometimes it's people who are criticizing because they honestly believe they can do better but because they haven't done it they get angry so they're gonna have Mm. negative things to say because they're like I thought of this like Cliff Central someone probably thought of doing an online radio but they did nothing about it so they're like "Ah, i thought of doing this and if i did it i would have done it better so they're going to have negative things to say and sometimes it's really people who don't like what you're doing and it's okay we don't all drink the same drink we don't dress from the same shops it's okay and i think i'm always ready and I've been lucky that majority, it's always been people, even when I've done skits about sensitive issues like HIV, people have found it funny. That is luck. That is I, luck. I, it, not necessarily, because it's something we live with. It's something that every one of us has been affected, whether it's someone who's a friend, a colleague, a family member. It's how you say it. It's not what you say. It's how you say it. Do you think, Uguti, your success is integrally linked to social media and the way social media works at any other time? Do you think you could have recreated the success you have now? Um, I, I, I don't know, to be honest, but I think social media has really helped. But then in saying so, it could have done the opposite. Like my first video was that my Sangoma is the best. It's, it could have, it, I, I could have been the joke of the century. People could have seen it. Uh, uh, the joke could have been on me. So 
yes, social media has helped, but and yes, I have been very lucky, and I'm glad that people understood it for what I was uh, 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 understood what I was doing, and 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 got the joke and and found it funny because it could have worked uh, the other way around. Mm, again, luck, yes, and preparedness, yes, but getting going. You already had a career. You were able to finance some of the getting going for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the things that a lot of young people, a lot of people that try and get into the industry complain about. If we don't get gigs, then we can't do this because we don't have the money to do this. And, you know, it's always a chicken and egg situation. Mm-hmm. Do you think the investment, financial investment that you have made in yourself has paid off. I think it has it has paid off, and not only the financial investment. Um, it's also it's not always financial investment. Like my producer, it's uh, Uzamo Misi. She had nothing to do with this industry. She's just a businesswoman. But when I told her what I wanted to do, because she already believed in me as a person, she came on board. And bought all the equipment we needed because she could invest in me as a person. She believed that I wouldn't do, I wasn't in it for the fame. She knew if this is what I thought would work, it would work. So I was investable as a person. So it's not always about money. It's who you are, how you are, how you are to people. If people, if I believe in you, Pumi, even if you have no money, if you come with an idea, and I, I, I believe in you. I can invest in you. It's not always your own money. Sometimes just people believing in you. So it's how you carry yourself and your track record of being able to finish anything that you do and have reasons for doing it. Because we have a lot of people who are in it for the fame. And that's it. <laughs> that's what they think it's about. And that's what people want. And it's not a bad thing. If that's what you it's, want, it's, it's what not, you want. It's not a bad thing because some people just want to be famous. They're famous for being famous. If you ask what does so and so do, I don't know, but she's famous. Mm-hmm. So there are those people who just want that. But then that's not long lived because once, uh, the age catches up and you can no longer wear your bikinis and put photos on Twitter, then what do you do? Hopefully you've made enough money from hanging your ass out there. <laughs> so the interesting thing also, I, I didn't know Zamo wasn't in, in the industry. How did you and her connect? Because one of the things that everybody talks about is girls can't work with each other. You know, and Girls here you are two well. women making it happen. Girls work very well. The problem is just because you girls doesn't mean you can work well together. A lot of men can't work well together. Girls can work well very, very, very well together. I mean, we've, we've, we've got four or five women working well sharing the president. So nobody can tell me girls can't work well together. <laughs> Yeah, but that kind of sharing, sharing is caring. Sharing is caring. That kind of sharing, you know, you, you're out you there. You just need to choose your girls right. You need to choose the girls right. Yes. And, and what, what is the thing that you and Zamo share with each other that has allowed you this level of phenomenal success in such a short period of time? 
Because if the sango, I mean, I've written mango now that my sango is the best. I was clear, good, how? How did I miss this girl? How did I miss? <laughs> I then thought that there were others. And because by the time I saw that video, I think it had the number of hits that it had. It, it had thousands of hits on YouTube already. Mm. So I thought, good, I want to tell lento. You know, sometimes it's in late. You know, so so the, the the success rate has been phenomenal in a very short space of time. And that was what? That was two years ago? Three years ago? Uh twenty fifteen. It was a year ago. A year ago. Yes. And and it's 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 been very good. The thing with Zamo, now we, we, we have a production company and we are doing a lot more things. We even in the process of doing a movie, we've just done a pilot for a sitcom. Uh, I'll show you a bit of it. Oh, please do. Please do. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a very interesting sitcom. It's called Judge Tenjiwe. So it's like my two worlds <laughs> meeting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Uzamo is a businesswoman and an investor. So when I presented my story, and she's someone that we, we come from the same township. Uh, she's a little bit older than me, but I like I grew up in front of her, and because she believed in me, she was ready to listen to what I was saying. And when I said it, she was like, "Okay, let's go for it." And it was easy like that. And she's been like, she supports everything I do, mm. and it's it's always nice to have someone you can share your ideas with. And even when I travel, she travels with me. So it it makes life a lot easier. And when you went home and said, I've quit my job as a lawyer, I'm now a comedian. Uh, my grandmother was not impressed. Could you explain to your grandmother? She does not understand it till today. Like, uh, so you just go at night and you stand in front of men and they pay you. Are you stand sure that's all you do? Men. <laughs> You sure they only pay you for opening your mouth? There's nothing else that you open. So she she's oh she yeah and up to this day she always prays for me to get a real job. She she doesn't understand it. It became better when she saw me on TV. So in Coco's eyes, this child had a job and a good job, and she's oh she yes. And then I I started with the road, and the character I was playing was a maid. And my grandmother was a maid. So she still didn't like that. Like, after all this education, you're still working as a maid. Because she didn't get it. (laughs) Shame. When will we be free? South Africa is still not free. You're still a maid. After all this, you see? So she's not happy. How old is Gogo? Gogo is about 76, 78. But oh, she's that's not, not happy. So old, it, it, that's not old. That's not old. It's only old in the township because we are dying young in South Africa. <laughs> yeah, that's not old. Seventy-eight <clears throat> men now, and then so when you then come home, we some she worries. She has to pray. She has to pray. Yeah. I have to tell her it's my savings. She wouldn't take. It. She won't take anything from comedy. You she lie. doesn't think it's a real job. She thinks uh, I've been bewitched. How can I go to school for so long and then leave my job? I need to go to a sangoma. Something has been done. She 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 she, she doesn't buy it. And unfortunately, I can't bring her to come and see my shows. Why not? Hey, the things I talk about. 
I don't want to give a heart attack. Do you have those moments where you mo mo Do you write your skits down before? Like I, I write an idea and yes. then pre- and then practice. Yes. Do you ever have moments where you go? <laughs> but this one is very funny. <laughs> I, 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 I do And I also have those moments mm, I hope people get this one Because sometimes you just think Have I gone too far? Have you ever had that? Yes have you ever Sometimes had when, I, when, I, when I upload the skits Because I upload every Friday at 12 mm-hmm. I like turn my phone off Everything off for an hour And then go back <laughs> to check what people are saying Like Oh no uh, And then when, when oh, I no. say People are, are laughing I'm like Husa. So I can see how the local stuff is easy for you and it's easy for me. But your international stuff, because you're both in London and South Africa and you travel between the two and your, your, your comedy also lives in the two places. But I can't see, unlike Chris Rock or mm-hmm. those guys, where we understand their comedy because we watch American TV all the time. I can't imagine Londonites understanding. They actually do. They do. I, I I had a show where I was. It was the first show to be done in Zulu, and that's because of the skits. Because I've been doing my English in comedy hey, in London. London. Yes. yes but Zulu. they wanted Zulu because there are so many South Africans who've seen my skits who live in London, and they just wanted me in Zulu. Oh, nice. So for Christmas, like for the Christmas period, that's what I did. I, no, I had a show just in Zulu. Oh, you must tell exactly. your Zulu. And then I'm I'm going again with Uskumba. On the, <laughs> you know that guy is insane. I know. I'm going with Uskumba on the 19th of March, and uh, and when I do my English shows, I actually find that performing in Europe is easier for me than here. Because here mm. there are so many people in the comedy circuit who've lived my life, who've lived my story, like. I hope Pumi doesn't talk about this, but as a, as a, as a comedian, a f- black African, South African, Zulu female comedian in London, I'm competing against nobody. My story is my story. How I see London is how I see London. Whereas if you also a comedian and you also from here, you might see it the way I see it. So in London, I have no competition. Everything I say is like new material. New. It's how I see it. It's how I see it. And I can tell them off. The way, the way I see it. Oh, uh, this, you know, you have made my day. Ah, oh, thank you. You have made my day because I'm walking out of here with the, the level of confidence, both of you girls, the level of confidence that, that I've seen in the person that you are. When you, when you, you want that one? a little clip. It's because I'm a, African Zulu comedian in London and I'm making it happen in Zulu. Thank you so much. Thank so you. Before we go, very quickly, Bitches Be Back is on Eprakban. Yes, Carnival City, which is not too far for me. You can no, get there. No, no, it's Eprakban. It's Eprakban. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need a passport. You can drive there. Of course you need a passport uh, for the Puravos Hordain. Uh, on the 26th <laughs> and 27th, it's going to be the hottest lineup of funny comedians. Not just Female comedians. We just happen to be females, but bring any men will still be funny. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for coming out. I'm, I'm really glad. And I, 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 I hope that when I'm all old and gray, I can still see Utenjiwe and oh, you making will. me laugh. Even if I'm no longer a stand up comedian, I'll be there with my wheelchair as a sit down comedian, but I'll be doing comedy.
Thank you very much, Sissy. So you heard it here first. Bitches Be Back is on this Thursday, this Friday, Friday and Saturday. Saturday at Carnival City, Brakpan. The hottest lineup of females. The best comedians in this country. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pumi Mashekho and you've been tuned in to Womanla. This is CliffCentral.com.